Welcome to Lobster Brain, the podcast that shows you what lobsters can teach you about rewiring your brain. So why lobsters? Lobsters fight to see who becomes top lobster. If they win, their brains change to embrace their new status. If they lose, their brains change too to cope with that change in hierarchy. It's called neuroplasticity. As humans, we can rewire our brains too, but unlike lobsters, we can come back from failure and hard knocks to become even more resilient. So what are the turning points that highly successful people go through to reach top lobster status in the human world? In this podcast, you'll find out. I'm Danny Donerkey. And I'm Lisa Morton. And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from author, podcaster and political strategist Alistair Campbell. Alistair's top lobster status is well established. He was the director of communications for Tony Blair when Tony was prime minister. Alistair currently co-hosts the number one hit podcast, The Rest is Politics, alongside former Tory MP Rory Stewart. He's also well known for his frank and open conversations around mental health. Lisa, why did you want to get Alistair onto the podcast and what do you think our listeners will learn from him? Yeah, well, I just thought that Alistair, who's somebody who I've followed actually throughout his career, I felt he was such an intelligent human being, but had so many levels. And for me, I've, I felt like he's had a hundred careers in one career. Like it's quite incredible what he's achieved in that period of time. And that he's also been really open about his mental health struggles. So I was interested to know how are you so prolific in so many careers whilst you're still struggling with those demons and I I just thought that'd be so helpful for so many of our listeners. He's got so much wisdom in so many different areas but for me I get to work with equally successful people who don't show those sides of themselves and you don't get to see beneath the surface from the outside whereas we called it courage and Alistair doesn't see it that way But for me, it's such a courageous way of being to show yourself more fully to the world at such a high status. And I think he's got a lot that we can all learn from that. Alistair, thanks so much for being here with us today. I just want to let our listeners know why you're actually here. So it was a few weeks ago now, we were driving back from Cambridge. We've been visiting my son at Cambridge and... We were on the M6, the the famous M6, and it was a standstill. And we were there for two hours, actually, not moving. I was with my mum and my wife, and they're both huge fans of yours, uh, the Rest is Politics podcast. And we were listening to it, and my mum said, oh, Ali would be a great guest on your podcast. And I thought, yeah, he would, but there's not much chance he's going to come on. So I thought, how could we get him on? So I sent an email to you. And uh, I mentioned, of course, that my dad used to play for Burnley. And within two minutes, I get an email back saying, (laughs) yes, that is my kryptonite and I will come on. So thanks so much for being here. Hold on a minute. Before you do that, what right does your mum think she's got to call me Ali? The only yeah. people who call me Ali are Fiona, my mum, R.I.P. and Tony Blair. That's it. <laughs> well, she's in She's in good company. <laughs> I did find it quite amusing that she called you Ali, but yeah, that's just my mum. <laughs> Thanks, Alistair, for joining us. I'm over the moon because I really read into a couple of your books this weekend. And on the base of the back of that, you've inspired me to write my own book that I've been sitting on for years. Good. So it's 11 o'clock last night. I started writing that. Yeah. So and Danny's been saying I should do that for some time. So thank you. And you probably know then that Lobster Brain, the podcast, was an idea that Danny and I came up with. And it's all about trying to get an insight into the brains of highly successful people and to explode the myth that a lot of people do have that inside the brain of successful people, it's rosy there all the time. Mm. There are never issues, there's never adversity. And so I'm really interested in what gave you the courage to speak up about your own mental health issues when lots of successful people just won't go there. Mm. It's funny, I don't see it as courage at all. I actually don't, I don't like the debate around talking about mental health as being about people being very brave if they're open up about it, because I think that in itself can be very stigmatizing. 
I, I'm well aware that stigma and taboo exist, but I've never felt it myself. So I think that's what makes me feel more comfortable about it. My first real experience of dealing with mental illness was my brother, who had schizophrenia. He was, I was in my teens, he was in his early 20s in the army, and he got, he got invalided out of the army with schizophrenia. And that was like a, such a big thing for the family. But I saw the way that he dealt with it, and I saw how, even though it was life-changing for him, it didn't change the fundamentals of his personality. And it didn't change his determination to try to get the best out of his life that he could. And then when I had my own issues, starting in the 80s, when I had a bit of a drink problem, then I had a breakdown, psychosis. And um, I was just very lucky because my colleagues, my, my former boss took me back to my old job, which was an amazing thing. Even when I was still in, you know, I was still ill, but he took me back. Um, and my colleagues, even, you know, I was on the Daily Mirror then. And even though the newspapers, very hard drinking, very kind of macho, very robust sort of environment, they were actually incredibly supportive and understanding. So I've never felt that need to sort of hide away and not talk about it and be embarrassed. And far from being embarrassed, I'm incredibly proud of, um, very proud of my brother for the life that he managed to lead despite having this horrible illness and proud of my own ability to, to lead the life I lead and to have led the had the career that I've had and with all this stuff going on in my head the whole time. So I've never felt brave. I've never felt bold. I've just felt good about it, to be honest. Alistair, you spoke openly about when you had the psychotic episode and there was voices in your head that, that aren't normally there. How did those voices differ from the voices that, that are in your head all the time? They were a noise for a start. You know, most of the voices in your head are, are thoughts that are making suggestions and you know kind of just directing the way that we're thinking and and that then leads us to to decide you know whether to go and have a cup of tea whatever it might be these were actual voices these were noises inside my head and it wasn't just voices it was music um it was different conversations going on it was like it was a cacophony come the end of it it started quite gradually but by the end of it when i you know literally had this kind of explosion inside my head it was a cacophony. They were just, can't even describe it. There was just noises going off left, right and centre inside my head. So, you know, and if that doesn't make sense to most people, it, it, it shouldn't because it's, it's really not normal. It's not what happens to most people inside their head. But, um, and of course, my big worry at the time, because you've got this weird twin track thing going on. You've got a real, your real rational mind that's going on which is thinking, this isn't right, something's going wrong here. And you've got this other bit going on, which becomes your kind of new reality. And obviously, I, I, my immediate thought was, this is schizophrenia, I've got the same as Donald. Now, I was lucky, it was one, it was one very bad psychotic episode. I, I've never had another one. I've got close a few times, but I've never had it like that. And I think having had it like that, is what now makes me better able to pull back when I'm maybe getting into a state of, you know, being emotionally overwhelmed or exhausted or stressed or whatever it might be. You talk in your book, Living Better, about mm. the, the scale that you have and how you, you use that scale to help you to understand where you are and to maybe try and bring yourself back. Can you explain to our listeners how you use that and what coping mechanism that is for you? I guess it comes from the insight that we're all, we've all got mental health, you know, like we've all got physical health. And some days you wake up and you think, well, I've got a bit of a cold or I've got a bad back or I don't. So I now do this thing where every morning, just a, it's just a, like an instinct thing. I just tell myself how I feel. And I go from one to ten. And one is, in one, Danny's dad won the... Well, it wasn't the Premier League then, but he won the first division with Burnley every single year that he was there. And we got into Europe and we never lost mm. a game, right? One, Brexit never happened. Donald Trump doesn't exist. <laughs> Boris Johnson never became Prime Minister. That's one, right? It's not real. <laughs> two is just down from that. And I've been two. And two is when I get out of control. I get, you know, I, I mean, I love having energy. And three and four is when I've got energy and I've got passion and I've got 
stuff to do and the weather's nice and it just I just feel really, really good about everything. And that's where I like to be, three and four. Two is a kind of dangerous version of that. Five is, you know, kind of okay. I'm okay. Life's all right. Then once I get over the line into six, seven, it's a, li- it's a bit of a kind of depressive, that's my depressive spiral. And I go down to nine and I don't allow 10 because 10 is suicide. So that's the scale. And so if I wake up and I say to myself, oh, 6.5, I know I'm on the kind of, I've just got to watch out for myself. I've got to be careful. So I might, you know, Fiona and my partner, she and I go swimming every morning. If I'm at 6.57, I won't want to get it. I won't want to do it. So I kind of, I force myself. If I get to eight or nine, I can't, mm-hmm. but I will force myself. And then, and it's other little things. It's all about coping mechanisms. I don't listen to the news. I don't read newspapers. I read books or I listen to music. If I don't feel like going for a run or going for a swim, I'll go for a walk. Or if I don't feel like leaving the house, I'll walk up and down the stairs for 20 minutes just to kind of tell myself I've got to kind of keep doing some sort of exercise, keep myself active. I'll do some work. And then it's things like tiny things, like there's a blind on the stairs downstairs on the landing from our bedroom down to the rest of the house. And if I'm feeling six, seven, if I walk past it, I'll feel worse. I don't know why, but I do. So now, however bad I feel, I lift the blind and I just feel it's one of those tiny things that you do and it makes you feel a bit better. And maybe it's about letting the light in, I don't know. And then the other thing, you know, I think a lot of men will identify with this. When I'm going into a depression, I kind of let myself go a bit. I don't shave, so I force myself to shave. I've never had facial hair. <laughs> I've forced myself to shave. I brush my teeth twice. <laughs> you know, I just like, these are just little things that you, you find. And I think what it is, you find things that work for you. Sometimes if I'm feeling really low and I don't want to talk to people, I'll make sure, I'll go and sit where the dog sits and then the dog's there and the dog's sort of just very kind of comforting presence, you know? So these are all little things that you can do. And, and once you know they work, the next time it happens, you kind of, you can, you can go into overload on them. You do them all. And you just, you know, not always, but sometimes it'll just make you feel a bit better. Mm. How are you feeling today? Today was a four. Okay. <laughs> it was four borderline 4.5. It was more 4.5, to be honest, but it's okay. okay. It's okay. Okay. Well, thanks. And I think at the moment it is, it is the state of the world that's kind of stopping me getting back up to three, really. Yeah. Um, find myself waking up pretty much every morning at the moment. I mean, I, I, actually, I actually woke up this morning, let's say to Fiona, if Matt Hancock coming third in the jungle is on the BBC News, that radio is going out the window. <laughs> I, I know you're very vocal about Boris and Trump and, and all these uh, leaders. You're not a big fan, obviously. Why do you think we are voting these people as our leaders at this point in time? God knows. Um, I'm actually writing a book about this. Well, this is part of it at the moment about trying to get people properly re-engaged in serious grown-up politics. And I think it's a combination of, uh, I think populism is like a virus. And I think it's spreading around the world. And then it's the populists are exploiting po- the polarization that the media then has exacerbated. And it's also the thing about Trump and Johnson in particular. You know, if you think about when, when, right, when your dad was bringing you up, Danny, I've got no doubt at all. And I bet this is, I don't, I don't know Lisa and I don't know your parents, but I bet you, you were told again and again and again and again, that it's really bad to lie. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happened that we now are electing leaders that when we know that they're liars mm. and and that I was talking to a head teacher the other day and he said look you know it's really hard at the moment it's really hard to tell your kids about the thing about the truth because insofar as they are aware of politics it's these bloody liars that we've had and then I you know I joke about Hancock but you see somebody like that who you know, not that long ago, was standing up in front of a TV camera every day telling us what we could and couldn't do. And he's now 
building an entire PR strategy around himself, reinventing himself in a fucking reality TV <laughs> show. It just so. And when it's interesting, though, you said what is happening that we are electing these people. That's the important thing. Yeah. Everybody who votes for somebody like that is making a conscious decision to do that. Yeah. So we've all got to ask ourselves about this. It's not just about them. They're exploiting what we are we are becoming. Now you can argue that we've been led to that. You can argue, and I think the media is a big part of that. But unless I really do believe, unless we reverse this, or we find something better, then. I think politics is in a, you know, I think we all know the country's in a bit of a mess, but I think our, the whole system on which our democracy is meant to function is is in danger. Yeah. Interesting, in terms of leaders, one of the leaders that in your book, Winners, that you highlighted, and obviously since you, you've written that book, she... Well, at least I'm loving all the book plug-in. Sad. <laughs> I'm a big book reader. <laughs> but I love that. I mean, that book, Winners, if anyone who's listening to this, you've got to read the book. It's amazing. And you said that even though you're not a royalist, that you found that probably one of the most enduring winners of our lifetime was the late Queen Elizabeth II. So mm. more poignant now since you've written the book, but I just wondered if you could explain why. Yeah, it was really interesting. That. I mean, the book was about all the different things that it takes, I think, by my analysis, to be a winner. And I went through them kind of one by one, leadership, strategy, teamship, innovation, boldness, crisis management, adaptability, um, character, values, all these sort of different aspects that you think go preparation. And I was interviewing John Brown, who was the business former boss of BP. Um, and I was interviewing for the section on crisis management. And I, I was getting to the end of the process of doing all the interviews and all the research and I was writing it. And I said, I've got people who are ticking sort of 9 out of 10, 15 out of 16, 19 out of 20 of all my different boxes. He said, I haven't found anybody yet who I think absolutely ticks them all. And he said, what about the Queen? And I hadn't even thought about that. And I went away and I thought, about, yeah, maybe, maybe. So, And because I, I was very fortunate in that I had quite good relations with some of the people working for the Queen because not long after we got elected and Princess Diana died and we were sort of thrown together in terms of, managing the aftermath of all that so I became quite friendly with some of them so I went and talked to them and I you know really tried to analyze the way that she'd strategized or the royal family Buckingham Palace had strategized from the so-called Annas Horribilis to where she was when I was writing the book and I think if you look at the 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 mood and the and the reaction around her death you know you've got to say it was like it's just an extraordinary story of of I think adaptation and strategic response to a bad period because that the, there was a time when I think they genuinely worried that they were in real trouble and now I, you know to be absolutely frank their position is cemented for a very long time again mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that is down to her and she's a highly successful person who's not is definitely not all been rosy in her brain for the whole of her life I mean we've seen she's come through massive adversity and challenges so what would your view be on that in terms of how you try and navigate some of that massive adversity in your life? I mean, I know, I think you're involved in the campaign after Diana died to help us feel empathy for the Queen. I think you advised her to talk as a grandma in that speech after Diana died. I do think that, you know, I've been watching the crowd. You know, when you think of all the stuff that they've gone through, I think the main lesson out of that is that it's amazing what people can survive as long as they stay true to a set of values and principles and, and, and manage their way through the really bad times. Now, of course, it's easier to some extent. You can argue, well, you know, they're, they're very well funded. They've got massive privilege. They've got an inbuilt advantage. They, they're probably treated by the public and to a lesser extent by the media, with far more reverence than most other institutions are. But I think, I think it's just that sense of, you know, you can get through, you can persevere, you can develop resilience. Again, you, not just the Queen, but you look at, you know, you go back, there, there, there really was a time when I think a lot of people thought, well, Prince Charles is never going to be king. You know, because it's the marriage, the scandals and all that stuff. But, you know, 
here he is. And not only that, but Camilla, the one who, you know, was seen as the other woman causing all the problem, etc. She's, <laughs> she's, she's the queen. So it's like, I guess the lesson is you can, you can endure, you can endure and you can survive an awful lot. Yeah, I think a lot of the leaders that you speak to in your book and a lot of the leaders and footballers that I've worked with, uh, they've all gone through huge adversity. And we spoke to Rodney Marsh and he said that he believes that to be a successful person, you have to create this hardness. What has been your experience of that? I think you've certainly got to be resilient and I think you've got to be able to deal with setback and you've got to be able to deal with criticism and not let it get to you. Um, I think you should let it get to you if there's something in it. I think sometimes you've got to be careful not to just push everything away because it is criticism. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about, about sport, one of my favourite interviews in the winner's book was Floyd Mayweather because what set him apart from everybody else is he, he literally never lost. He never lost a fight. And that's very, very rare. You know, even even the... You know, the top golfers lose tournaments, the top tennis players lose mm. tennis matches, the top footballers, they're always losing. So that means that, you know, the question is, do you, do you allow that to put you down or do you use it in some positive way? And my favourite quote in the whole book, I've got a, a wall here covered in post-its and some of them are quotes from the book, but one of them was the Irish guy who coached the Kenyan athletes Colm O'Connell, and he said, you know, the, the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly. Um, and I think the other thing that ties the two together, I always feel that when you're at the centre of something and when something bad is happening around you, you inevitably feel this is the whole world is talking and thinking about this. They're not. You know, you are because you're at the centre of it. But if you allow yourself to even... And I quote in the, in the winner's book, I quote Bill Clinton about how he got through the whole Monica Lewinsky, mm -hmm. that period of his life, which was incredibly difficult for him personally and politically. And I sometimes say, if I'm going through something, I think, you know, bloody hell, Clinton had literally the whole world, every newspaper, every broadcaster in the world, that was the thing they were all obsessing with it. I mean, you know, you've been worried about this little thing that somebody's trying to do on you, you know, just, it doesn't matter. So it's kind of getting that perspective, I think. I think that's a form of toughness. It's getting proper perspective. And then being able to communicate that to other people so that, you know, again, within the sporting context, if a team is feeling that they are under siege, they are under attack, well, how do you actually get them into it? How do you either turn that into a positive mindset that they can use or how do you give them a sense of perspective? Stop worrying about it. Most people... You know, Burnley's one of the few. I think we and Preston are the only two clubs that have literally never moved ground. And I'm always fascinated. To this day, I've been going to Burnley now for 60 years, right? And if I'm running a bit late for a game and the, you go, I park the car and I get down the street and I'm looking through windows into houses where people who live right next to the ground have never been, right? <laughs> and it's like, to me, that's like, how, why can you, but they don't care. They're not, they're not thinking that, you know, Willie Donachie had a terrible game. Not that he ever did, Danny. As you know, he never <laughs> played a bad game for Burnley. We all, we all loved him. <laughs> That's not what I heard. <laughs> yeah, he got, he got a bit of stick every now and then. <laughs> and what about the people around you? So Danny and I have spoken to a lot of people now, and it seems that although highly successful people seem to be very gregarious and they have very wide networks that when it comes down to it there's a really tight tribe around that person well Alex Ferguson says it's the six people who are going to carry your coffin yeah I don't think Fiona will carry my coffin but um <laughs> I think that she might put me in it but um I do think that those kind of key relationships uh, are so important and I think friendship as well is an interesting thing. And, you know, again, going back to the football world, I'm always fascinated by even more so now. So like, I know I've been lucky in that I've, I've become very friendly with various Burnley players down the years. But it's very interesting to see how, for example, Paul Fletcher, who's a good friend of mine, played for us when I was like a teenager. And 
you know, he stayed quite close with quite a lot of the people that he played with. I think today, you know, they're all coming from different countries and then they're going back to different countries. I think it's probably the case that I remember talking to Peter Schmeichel recently and he said, you know, you, you kind of stay in touch a bit, but in terms of really close friendships out of football, he said most of his actually came from Denmark, from his time in Denmark. So I think that that sense of who your key relationships are, I've been very interested, for example, in my political life. Um, I've stayed in touch with a lot of people, um, but actual what I would define as really close friendships, you know, quite few, quite few. And I think that sense of knowing that the really important relationships are the ones that are very, very close to you. And the truth is, I couldn't have done the job that I did for Tony Blair without... And if you've, if you've obviously read some of my books, Lisa, but if you've read my diaries, I mean, it was, you know, it was touch and go quite a lot of the time with me and Fiona because she didn't like the, the life that we were leading as a, as a result of the choices that I've made. But I think deep down, I had a confidence that it wouldn't lead to, you know, breaking up. And that gives you a strength. Um, and I think for a lot of other people, they don't have that. And I think that can be shattering if you're in a in a difficult pressured job it's interesting you, you you speak about football in that way because you know as you say players now they come from everywhere so it's it's really difficult to get that sense of belonging that used to be there five mm. years ago ten years ago and I think it's probably there in all industries so what have you found like in your work with Tony Blair and all your all your roles how have you helped get that sense of belonging in teams you've got to have a sense of shared objective you've got to believe in that objective you know some people sometimes say to me you know what if you were working for Rishi Sunak what advice would you give him if you'd been advising Boris Johnson today, I couldn't do it mm. I couldn't do it because I couldn't ever feel that I was part of their team I wouldn't want to be part of their team so you've got to have that sense of belonging I'm a great believer in understanding that the team leaders are operating at every level of the team you know, encouraging people who are, you know, who in terms of their salary and their job title might be deemed to be quite low down the organisation, but that they bring a real value. Again, I say in the, in the winner's book that, you know, I, th I think it was fascinating that how often when Manchester United scored a goal, that the first person that Alex Ferguson would be hugging and going to was Albert, the kit man. Because he was more than the kit man, he was he was part of a fabric, and I think you see that, you know, you see that. And it's interesting watching the another manager I talked to, Arsene Wenger, and he talked about he talked about he noticed that when you saw the Ryder Cup, he said these golfers that we'd seen out in the British Open, the American Open, the Australian Open, whatever it might be, you have a sense of the identity of these individual golfers, and then the minute they're part of that team, it, it's almost like it becomes a different sport. They're doing exactly the same things, but there's something added to it. And I th so I think it's about understanding that. I know when Sean Dyche was manager at Burnley, the first thing you saw when you went into the training ground was this thing, you know, the individual expresses himself best through the team. I think that is a, it's an insight that you have to kind of, it doesn't mean you don't have special talent. It doesn't mean that everybody knows that a Ronaldo, an Mbappe, a Messi, the Lewandowski, these are special talents, but the, without, the guy, without the bus driver getting them to the ground, without the physio getting that hamstring sorted, without, the, you know, without all that stuff, they're, they're not on the pitch. You've got to understand that. I completely agree with that. One of our values is leaders create leaders, and a lot of our culture as an organisation is born from the book legacy and the whole culture around the All Blacks. One of the things I was interested in leadership was that having run my own business since I was quite young, I always felt that I had to have all the answers for everything that I could. I always had to be able to solve stuff. And it was only really, I think, when we got to COVID when I realised that I didn't have a toolkit for any of this. And it was actually Gary Neville who just said to me, tell them what Alex Ferguson had said to him, tell them what's going on in the boardroom, just tell them every day what's happening, even if you don't have the answers. And what was life-changing for me in a business point of view or as a leader's point of view was being okay to be vulnerable and allowing other people to be vulnerable. Mm. 
because I realized that the people that you're saying, you know, the bus driver or the kit boy or your new recruit, if they think being a leader is being having to have all the answers, they'll never think they can lead. And I was blown away by how we came together as a team because I was okay with being vulnerable. What is your view on that as a concept in leadership? Look, I think there are some leaders for whom that just wouldn't work, but that's because they wouldn't necessarily, I think Mourinho might be one of them, they wouldn't necessarily have the, the kind of, I don't mean this in a bad way, but the empathy or the humility to be able to do that. Whereas for others, I think it's, you know, that would be their style of leadership. Um, look, in the end, I think that, I, I think we've probably, outside dictatorships, I think we've probably hit the end of the road with the idea of absolute top-down leadership operating through fear. I'm not sure it works. I'm not sure it ever did. You know, you talk to people, you know, somebody like Alex Ferguson has a reputation with the hairdryer and all that stuff, but you talk to the players and it wasn't really like that. You know, he understood how to bring out the best of very, very different personalities. I think he had different, you know, you talk to Gary Neville, you talk to Peter Schmeichel and they'll, they'll say that, you know, Eric Cantona was allowed to do stuff that they weren't because he was a special talent and he dealt with him differently. Um, I remember Alex Ferguson saying to me that, you know, he, he never felt the need to bollock somebody like Paul Scholes because Paul Scholes would know when he'd screwed up and he'd be bollocking himself harder than anybody. <laughs> so I think it's about working out the, the different personalities that you've got there. Mm. Um, and, you, you know, I, some, some, I think you, see, you can see this in... I think this concept of treating people, I don't think you can treat people the same, but I think treating people with similar respect, but also that, that they understand there are, there are rules. I mean, my own management style, when I've ever had people working for me, and I had, you know, quite a, was sort of head of quite a big team in government, you know, I never expected them to work as hard as me. And that's easier said than done, but I would say to them, look, just because I get in first and go home, I, I don't expect you to hang around all day, you know, just work what you're meant to work. And then, but also, I also encourage people that, remember, you know, Dave Brailsford had this great line, ideas don't have rank, they have value. You know, encouraging people to, to challenge you and to disagree and not feel that that's going to mean that you're going to go against them. Or, you know, I, I would rather be challenged by somebody than, and I might push back, I probably would push back, but I'd rather have that than not have that. And that, I think that came from the top because, you know, Tony was like that. Tony Blair was not somebody who wanted just people saying, yeah, yeah, well done, that was brilliant. He just wasn't like that at all. You know, he expected us to, to challenge him and say, you know, why do you do that? What was that about? What, what, what are you talking about? That is nonsense. You know, he expected that. Um, but ultimately, he also understood that we, he had respect for our views, but we had respect ultimately for the fact that he was the guy at the top and he had to make the decisions. What, what do you think he saw in you, Alistair? Uh, you, you were clearly very key to him uh, and his, um, the way he led uh, government. What, what did he see in you that made you so important to him? Well, I think it was about... A, I think he was putting together a bit of a jigsaw. And I think with me, the, the specific thing was an understanding of the way the media worked and the way the media was changing. But I think more importantly, the way that in the modern era, how much harder it has become to develop and execute and narrate strategy. And I think he saw that that's what I was really interested in and felt I could bring to him. And... Um, but it wouldn't have worked without all the other stuff going on around where other people were bringing different qualities. You know, we had his chief of staff, Jonathan Powell, was very much just sort of, he was just keeping everything, everybody kind of focused and organized. Uh, other people who were much better at, you know, managing the, some of the kind of people on, uh, on the edges of the, the thing, but who could nonetheless cause us a lot of difficulty if they weren't being properly brought in. Um, we, you know, to be honest, we had a really good team of people. We had a really good team of people. A small number of us got a lot of the attention. I think in my case, because I was the guy that was in most contact with the media, so they became slightly obsessed with my role within it. But there were other people around who were, 
you know, every bit as important in, because none of us could operate without each other. Mm. And, and in all the things that you've done, cause you've like read so much stuff recently because I knew you were going to have this conversation with you and it feels like you've almost had many people's careers singly in your in your lifetime and that must bring its, its challenges. And I just wondered, looking back on what you've done today, was there any part of that career that you felt most comfortable and, and most at one with who you are? Mm, I don't know the answer to that. I think when I, felt, when I was a journalist, I felt I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it most of the time. But I think the politics is probably what, the political side is what, where I felt most kind of, wasn't, I was, you know, you read the diaries, I wasn't at ease with myself a lot of the time, but I felt, I kind of felt if I had a purpose, that was where I was carrying it out. Um, but in terms of feeling that my life kind of hangs together quite well, I think where I am now is quite good. You know, I've, I'm doing lots of different things, but I'm doing them on my own terms, mm. um, which I've never done before. Because if you think about journalism and journalism, as a, as a reporter on the mirror, you know, I was totally driven by what was happening in the world. I wasn't, I wasn't shaping it. I, it was like, you know, something Heisel, you know, happens. Uh, Hillsborough happens, the Bradford City fire happens, off you go. Um, and, we're, and then in, in politics, I was, I was very much driven and dependent on the the kind of somebody else's life it was i was basically you know whatever tony was doing thinking saying that is what was the most important thing going on at that time and i had to kind of adapt to that so whereas now i'm very much you know i'm i'm, my, I'm very much my own boss now if i want to do this i'll do it and i might have my laptop and i might be able to be working from home but it's my choice and um and i feel now I do lots of different things and, you know, I have a different balance in my life and I can, you know, so I'm working on a book, I'm working on a film thing, I'm working on different charity things, I'm working on different consultancy stuff. And it's not as, it's not as fulfilling in terms of changing the world, but it's just a different way of, of doing it. So I think I feel probably now is, is about as... Yeah, got the balance about right, I think. You talk in the book in Winners and also then Fiona picks up on this in Living Better when you discovered the condition maladaptive competitiveness. And I'd never heard of it before. And so many light bulbs went off in my head about maybe a bit about me, maybe maybe about my dad probably. But I just wondered, do you feel that now? Because that condition is about you're still playing when the whistle's blown. So I just wondered now, have you moved on <laughs> from that? And is it as exciting well, now I, as even I, you've got that freedom, or did you prefer it when you were like that? <laughs> I've still got it, I'm afraid. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you something now. Right. So yeah, we're still there. So I probably look on that about twenty times a day. It's the podcast charts. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. It's the podcast yeah, charts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, you're and all if, right if, you're if, okay if we, drop, if, we, if we if we drop off number one i'm like what's happening the the the, 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 the marketing people what the fuck is going on <laughs> <laughs> and i know it doesn't matter i know deep down it doesn't matter and yeah even things like you know games anything gotta win, gotta win. <laughs> you're even competitive about your dog like you think that the dog comes to you more than fiona or your daughter <laughs> No, it's not. It's worse than that. The, don, the dog is the most beautiful dog in the world ever. It's, it's, it's an officially recognised thing. <laughs> no, that's mine. <laughs> Alistair, it's quite interesting yeah. because on the day of our launch of Lobster Brain, Danny was exactly like you. <laughs> was he? Was he? Yeah. Well, you can imagine yeah. how it is having a dad who's a footballer and then a football coach. You can imagine how competitive that is. You've said that Westminster is a laboratory for mental health issues as well. And, you know, my experience of football and elite sport and even business, it's very much the same. And in all of these areas, people aren't speaking out and being open about it. 
Do you think that that's just normal or is it just the parts of life that I've had contact with or is it because you're high performing, it puts so much pressure on, it's going to lead to different impacts on your mental health? I mean, I would say at the moment, the people I'd be really worried about at the moment in terms of mental health, uh, people who are waking up after a troubled night's sleep because they just can't work out how they're going to get their lives together, earn enough money to pay the bills, look after their kids. And I think that's uh, that at the moment feels to me where a lot of the mental health challenges are going to come from. Um, that being said, I think they do, they do affect everybody. Because pressure, I always think it's important to try to differentiate between pressure and stress. I think pressure is great. But stress is something completely different. Stress is where... The, the guy that guy has not been not slept last night because he's convinced himself that he's actually not good enough and he's going to mess it up and if it comes to penalties he knows they're going to pick him and he knows he's going to miss it that's stress and that's a that's a completely different thing um but i think that i think embracing pressure is a good thing one thing that struck me was your use of marilyn monroe's quote thinking ink mm. That's on my wall. Is that on your wall, is it? I love it. And I've not heard that mm. before, but, you know, my daughter's had some anxiety issues. I mean, quite significant. She came through COVID at university and she's been a, a big fan of journaling. And I also will write reams and reams of pages about stuff. So is that something that's helped you? Because obviously you're a prolific writer. Do you feel that you've used writing to work through some of the, your challenges? And would you recommend other people to do the same if they're struggling? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I, I think the, um, again, it might be, I've always written, by the way, I wrote, I wrote when I was young and uh, I used to write, like Marilyn Monroe, I used to write poems and I used to write songs and I write loads of stuff every day. Um, and actually the book Living Better, in a way, that was, that was part of the process that I was going through at the time to kind of, I wasn't just exploring the theme of depression, I was also exploring my own and you know, it could be coincidence, but I've been a lot better since I wrote the book. Um, and, you know, that I, I think it might be that I'm, I'm older, I'm probably a bit wiser, but I actually do think the process of drilling down, really trying to get deep into what it is, how I deal with it, whether what stuff that I've tried, stuff that worked, stuff that worked, stuff that didn't, I think it sort of helps. So yeah, I'm, I, I really do believe that. And I, and I think it, even if it's like just making lists, you know, I, I find that sometimes just if you've got a decision to make, it could be a tiny decision about, you know, whether to say yes or no to an invitation to go and do something or whatever, right? But just writing down stuff like plus side, negative side, how will it make me feel? How do I think it will make me feel? I just do that and then it suddenly becomes clearer and then I say, you know, yes or no because it's become clear. Yeah. You should look up the whole poem, Lisa, it's great. Marilyn Monroe's? Mm. Yeah, look up the whole poem. I will. It just occurred to me while you were speaking that it feels like it's a shame to me that you don't, you, you're in a great place in your life but you don't feel that you are uh, changing the world as much as you were in the past in your political career, for example. Because I feel like through your book, at least the book Living Better, you're impacting so many lives and through speaking about mental health and it really feels like because you're in a better place, you are really shaping and changing the world in a big way. I mean, thank you for saying that, but I, I don't feel that. And maybe that's because my life is, is rooted much more. I've always felt that there's lots you can do through campaigning and writing and broadcasting and stuff. But I think if, if you're really going to change the world, I think you've got to be in power. And that could just be an old fashioned view. Um, but I've, I kind of still feel that really. I feel I've, I've sometimes feel I'm, I'm, I'm copping out a bit in knowing that or feeling that that's my insight, but then actually not going and doing it and doing it all in this, these different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's the other thing. I think that, that, you know, we all have different ways of motivating ourselves to keep doing stuff. Um, I genuinely, you know, of all the stuff that I do at the moment, I think the mental health stuff is probably the stuff that I 
I feel most at one with. I feel I'm, I'm off to live. I'm doing a thing in Liverpool tomorrow and it's kind of, you know, talking to a bunch of people who work in the health service about mindset and resilience and stuff like that. So I'll talk about the mental health stuff. And I feel that, you know, that's where I, f I feel I can make a difference. And um, But I don't think it's the same as being, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer and deciding we're going to put an extra billion pounds into child and adolescent mental health services. I'd really like to do that. <laughs> but to do that, you've got to do all the other stuff that I don't want to do anymore. Yeah, I think you, you're having a bigger impact in the world than you realize. And just to uh, finish, I'd just like to ask, you know, a lot of people will be struggling out there, as you said, with not being able to afford to pay their bills and all that kind of stuff. What advice would you give them? How can they help themselves at this difficult time? Oh, God, it's, you know, I'm sitting at the top of a four-story house in Hampstead with feeling warm and um, I guess... I think at times like this, I think friendship does become incredibly important. I think the, the, making sure that you understand, because I know this from a lot of my low points in life have come when I've been feeling very, very depressed. And when that happens, you feel like you're the only person who's ever, you feel like you're completely on your own. Nobody else understands it. Nobody else gets it like this. And that's not true. So I think it's understanding that, when bad stuff happens, the, there, is, there is within kind of human beings a desire to help each other. And I think it's finding the people who are going to do that with you, do that with you as opposed to just for you and build that kind of sense of community around that. Um, and the other thing I would say is I think they should all make sure that they vote in the next election and get rid of these I won't say it. <laughs> well, that's not like you to hold it. back. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there might be, there might be, there might be children listening. <laughs> I know politics doesn't change everything. And, you know, whoever, if Labour do get in, there's going to be a lot of tough stuff to do because it's going to be very difficult for the next few years. I can't think of a government that's done more damage to the country than this one. I really can't. I think they've done so much damage in so many ways and they've got to be got rid of. Alistair, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for responding to the call and uh, for allowing my mum to call you Ali. Uh, I, hope I, you I didn't continue. say I allowed her. I never gave her, I never gave her permission. She, <laughs> she took it upon herself. One time only. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call your dad William forever. <laughs> yeah, and I hope, I hope yeah. you weren't giving him too much abuse from the terraces at Burnley when he was playing. No, I always tended to get on Tommy Hutchinson's back. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apart from the goal, the goal that he scored at Hamden, and I, in my whole school life, I got reminded of that. What the own goal? Yeah, yeah. Or the goal? Yeah. yeah, the own goal. Yeah. Yeah, the own goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. These things happen, Daddy. You can't you can't be held responsible for your father's mistake. <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> sure. yeah. so okay we'll let you go on that really appreciate it thank you right, so guys. much and i'm gonna have to put right with thanks a lot thank, 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 thank you. you so much yeah no, do it just do it <laughs> wow danny what do you think about that conversation it was incredible lisa i think when he spoke about particularly the psychotic episode and how there was a cacophony of noise and you know how he's so open about that and how he recovered to do all of the incredible things that he's done in life and I think there was a lot of practical tips as well you know he spoke about the scale didn't he absolutely what really struck me is his view about the fact that so often if we've screwed up something we think we have or we're feeling shame around something that we don't think we've quite got right it was that kind of permission from Alistair to say look, no one really thinks about it. No one's really focusing on that. So unless you're absolutely out there publicly on a, you know, say, for example, the royal family. But even then he said, you know, yesterday's news is today's chip paper. So kind of get over yourself, get out of your own head because really people are so embroiled in their own lives. It doesn't really matter. So I think that's just liberating to have that conversation with him. I've actually talked about this to several people now, is Alistair's model of measuring where he is on the stress or the depression scale. For me, I've been trying to 
put into perspective by going, come on, things aren't too bad. So I feel that scale has been so helpful. And when I've actually shared that with my friends, they've gone, I really like that. I'm going to use it. Yeah, I think he, he uses it in a really good way because if he's getting into the fives or sixes, that's when he starts to put the practices in place that are going to make mm. sure that he looks after himself and, and has a lot of self-care. But I thought that it was really interesting that on the day he said that he was a four initially and then he realized that it was slightly untrue and he said, actually, it's a four and a half because mm. because of what's been happening in the world, you know, he feels that heavy toll. And another thing that I took away from him was the fact that he feels that in his current role, he's not having as big an impact in the world as he did when he was in politics. And, you know, even for our listeners listening to this podcast, it, it can have a huge impact on their lives. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. Lobster Brain will be back on the 19th of January with former world champion tennis player Anna Ivanovic. So Danny, what do you think people are going to get out of this conversation? I'm really excited, Lisa, to speak with Anna. I've known her a few years now and she was world number one and champion at the French Open. I think she was age 20. So from the age of four, when she first picked up a tennis racket, it was her love. And she had this dream of being world number one and it happened so quickly for her. And then I think after that, life wasn't as plain sailing and the lessons that she learned through the young victory and then the challenges she had after are gonna be really fascinating. She went on to marry Basti and I got to know them really well and they're, they're quite a well-known couple. And I think it'll be interesting to see how she copes with having that relationship in the limelight and what she's doing now that she's finished tennis. So she's with Bastian Schweinsteiger. And when we started working together, you obviously spoke so highly of them both and how much love you had for them as a couple. I really can't wait to, to meet her. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, please remember to rate, review and follow. And that way more people will get to hear about Lobster Brain. And also the next episode will drop into your feed as soon as it's ready.